hard enough as a huge organization, a huge brand to disrupt yourself. Some would argue that it's almost impossible, but you certainly can't do it if what you're really rewarding inside the four walls of your business is not innovation, but compliance, following the rules, coloring in the lines. You've got to encourage people to take risks. Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Unglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk about some of the things that don't always make it into our stories. This is The Backroom. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Backroom. I'm joined today by Doug Stevens, better known as the retail prophet in the industry, It's become something of a tradition here at Retail Dive to touch base with Doug as we wrap up one year and look ahead to the next. His most recent book, Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World, touches on how things like consumer behavior have been transformed in the past couple of years. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thanks so much, Daphne. It's great to be with you. Great to have you. And I'm at the point now where I'm looking forward to this every new year. So let me start off with something that you've said. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds dangerous. Yeah. Well, no, this intrigued me very much. Bad retailers will never run out of customers, but they will run out of brands. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is really how retailers tend to think. And at a time when brands are increasingly trying to take control of their own marketing and sales, tell me more about what you mean by that. Yeah, I own the quote. Uh, It was from an article that I wrote, I think, earlier this year. And and I I guess what I was thinking, you know, and you're quite right, Daphne, we tend to think when we think about retail, we tend to place an inordinate amount of focus, obviously, on the relationship between the retailer and the consumer. And I just got to thinking, you know, I don't think we we talk about retail enough uh, from the standpoint of the relationship really across the supply and value chain. So retail at its core is an equation. It's an equation of value between a brand on the one side and a consumer on the other side, and usually with a retailer as the intermediary. And that has been the case ever since, you know, the kind of the modern construct for retail came about. But 30 years ago, if you were a retailer, really fulfilling your end of that equation was fairly straightforward. You needed a physical distribution point or points that you could promise a brand, and you needed to be able to translate a modicum of product information and hopefully some level of service over to a consumer. And that was it. That was You were golden. And that was really all you had as a retailer to provide to the vendor. And frankly, that's all you had to provide to the consumer and everybody was happy. And today that's just clearly no longer the case. The stakes are much higher and consumers have awakened to the fact that we don't need retailers anymore. We can do business directly with brands in an increasing number of categories and across an increasing range of products. And brands are awaking on the other side to the reality that they can connect directly with consumers and they don't need retailers. So what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing brands stepping away from retail. I mean, uh, in 2017, Mark Parker basically threw down the gauntlet and said, uh, we're just going to be partnering almost exclusively with brands that actually add equity to our brand, you know, not, not retailers that are draining equity from it. And so they said, you know, out of this massive universe of retail distribution that we had, we're really going to invest our time and resources in 40 retailers. And these are retailers we think can step up and start providing some value to us. So that that is kind of where we're at. So the point of the article was really to say that retailers not only have an obligation to provide radical value now to consumers that exceeds the value that they have traditionally delivered, they also have this responsibility now to provide value for the brands that they carry as well and actually contribute value back to those brands. So, you know, the old days of just bringing in your vendors once a year and, you know, banging them over the head until they gave you lower prices. Frankly, those days are gone. And the way I see it, retailers work for the brand now, not the other way around, because fundamentally brands just don't need retail anymore the way they did. This sort of reminds me of something else that you talk about, and I'm going to throw another quote at you, but this one is not yours. Lee Peterson at WD Partners 
posted this on LinkedIn. He saw a talk being given at the Columbus School of Art and Design in Ohio by Kate Maher at Nike. She is the senior director of the global marketplace there. And she said, according to Lee, it's not how a store looks anymore. It's how it behaves. That sounded like Doug Stevens to me uh, a lot. Could you talk about that? Because, you know, even though you have this futuristic bent, you do talk about the role of the physical store remaining important. Yeah, boy. And it's it's a huge, it's a mountain of sort of understanding, I think, you know, and, and as much as I, I'd love to take credit for the thinking behind that quote, it actually goes all the way back to Steve Jobs. I think at one point, Steve Jobs said, when we when we think about design, very often we think about the way something looks. But he said, really, truly remarkable design, and I'm paraphrasing, sorry, Steve, um, really and truly remarkable design is about the way something works. It's not so much the aesthetics as it is about the mechanics. And when we sort of put that thinking into the framework of Apple, all of a sudden it starts to make sense, right? Apple stores didn't just look different than a Radio Shack or you know some other uh, seller of electronics. It behaved differently. All of a sudden now there was this genius bar and there was mobile POS and they had all, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of inventory laid out on tables for people to handle and, you know, and abuse. And and so it was a completely different working environment from a retail standpoint. And so I think that that is probably what she was and very rightly getting at. And that is why when I talk about the role and value and function of a physical store today, I often say that, you know, what we're really seeing taking place in the market today is not just this bland sort of transition over to this thing we call omni-channel, where it's all just one continuous experience across channels. In fact, the consumer doesn't even know they're in a channel. It's just all one thing. And, and I don't buy into it. I really believe that what's actually happening is that in the consumer's mind, Media is becoming the store. If we think about the traditional functions of a physical store, that being to display products, to provide product information, and to offer a secure and convenient means of payment for those products, media does that, right? Virtually every form of media around me today, whether it's an Instagram post or a TikTok video or you know an ad on, on the uh, header of a website, all of these forms of media now are a direct path to purchase. So what's the role of a physical store? In my mind, physical stores are transitioning over to becoming this incredibly powerful and effective and cost-efficient media channel. As brands now are sort of bumping their heads on the cost of digital media as an acquisition means for new customers. I was just reading something, um, I think it was actually a Retail Dive article from 2017, uh, Daphne, that said at that time, Wayfair was losing money on every new consumer that was acquired through digital media. They were losing money. And here we are in 2021, and we know that compared to 2017, a lot of media costs have gone up tenfold. So brands are now sort of hitting the ceiling on cost of customer acquisition through digital means. But meanwhile, if I'm Target or I'm Walmart, how many millions of customers are you seeing come through your stores every week, every quarter, every year? And the opportunity you have to create a brand impression, to engage that consumer in your brand, its values, its products, its ecosystem, to go out and buy that media exposure on the open market would put a lot of businesses out of business. But it's already happening. The problem is we're not thinking of retail as a media format. We're not investing in it and building it like it's a media format. And we are sure not measuring it in a monetary sense, as a media play. But it's changing. And I think that's precisely what brands like Nike and others are doing. They are treating their stores as media and their media as stores. And could you talk about what are the inputs here? What Are we talking about the people working in the stores? Are we talking about a store's location, about architecture? I mean, what are the elements of building that media outlet? It's everything. It's all of it. Everything that you just mentioned and more. I mean, I look at it this way because, you know, you get this question, right? 
if we go back, say, five or six years, everyone was saying experiences, experiences, experiences. It's all about experiential retail. I mean, we could go back further than that. Joseph Pine was writing about the experience economy in the 1990s, for goodness sake. And then all of a sudden, people started to say, okay, we, we get that it's all about experiences, but what the heck are experiences all about? You know, how do we create an experience? And we saw retailers and shopping centers kind of installing novelties and that sort of thing, thinking that's what it's about. Is it about flagship stores? Is it about pop-ups? What is this notion of experience? And here's the thing. An experience is the sum total of all the content that you are exposed to in a particular moment. That's really all it is. If I go to a fine restaurant, then everything from the design of the restaurant to the smell when I walk in the, the front door to the way the host or, or uh, maitre d' greets me, everything, everything, including the food, is just content. And so from a retail standpoint, we have to think about every experience that way, that it's all just an amalgam of content. But what separates great brands from the not-so-great brands is that they don't leave any of that content to chance. Everything is deliberate, everything is by design, and everything is being executed according to some sense of, of standards or roadmap. And that, that includes you know, where the store is, how it's designed, what it looks like from the outside, the first thing I see, smell, hear, touch when I walk in, the first person that encounters me and engages with me, all the way through my entire relationship with that brand, Everything is just content. The problem, Daphne, is that most retailers, if we're being completely honest, swing their doors open in the morning. They have a vague idea of what their brand represents and the promise it's making to consumers, but they leave most experiences to chance. You know, most of what we experience at retail is just an accident. You know, first of all, this sort of the way you're talking sort of reminds me of theater. You know, if you ever know anyone who's involved in a production, theater people from actors to the lighting people talk about choice. Everything is a choice. Where someone steps or stands is a choice. How something is lit is a choice. Everything is a choice. So it's very deliberate, even though when you go to see a play, you don't sense any agonizing over anything. You just experience the thing as a whole. Is there any tension around what these choices that retailers have to make with all these different elements and the kind of brand consistency that they think, or maybe that to some extent does need to happen throughout a chain. You know, if I know that I'm at a Target, I know that I'm a Nordstrom, how does the storytelling work, you know, for individual stores when you're also considering brand consistency? Yeah. You, you know, you raise a really good analogy. And frankly, if, if I go back to my early 20s, early to mid 20s, my, my background was theater and acting. So I appreciate that world that you're describing, right? Everything is a choice. Everything is deliberate. No actor is just standing on a place on, on stage for, for no reason, right? And if they are, then the director says, okay, what's your motivation in this moment? Because you got to do something, right? You can't just be a, a tree. So you're very right in saying that th th there's a good parallel here, and that's precisely the kinds of choices that retailers ought to be making. In, in, in Ritz-Carlton's world, they call it scenography. When you look at the, the thinking behind, and in fact, they're, one of their principal designers at Ritz-Carlton was a teacher at a place called the National Theatre School, which I was an attendee of in Canada. But anyway, that aside, he brings that discipline to his work from a design standpoint, and he calls it scenography. It's, it's creating a scene that is very much a story that, as, as a guest, you're walking into a story at a Ritz-Carlton hotel that has a history to it. There are things that happen in the moment, and everything is very much geared to that scenography. Precisely the same sort of theory when it comes to retail, deliberate decisions about the look and feel of things, uh, deliberate decisions about how staff are positioned in the store and, and knowing exactly what it is that they are going to do and say. Now, I understand that sounds contrived and every stage production, when it's in rehearsal, is contrived, very much so. Everything feels very awkward and actors are sort of, you know, finding their spots in a very 
you know, kind of awkward way. But on opening night, when the curtain opens, the audience is transported into a different reality. Nobody is sitting there thinking, you know, is that actor remembering his lines or they're blocking? No, you're engrossed in the story. And that's exactly the way we need to approach retail for this new era. It has, It is time that we start thinking about this as performance. Now, how do we ensure consistency? It's a good question. You know, let's take a performance of Hamilton or a production of Hamilton, for example, or, or any other Broadway musical. I mean, at, at a certain point, there, there are going to be thousands of versions of Hamilton out there. And some will be somewhat better than others. And some, you know, may not have the same quality of the Broadway cast, perhaps. But then again, there are lines to be read. There is blocking that is, you know, outlined in the script. There are stage directions. So there's some documentation that allows all of these productions to be at least up to a level of quality, uh, performance quality. And I think we need to look at chains of stores the same way. Will your you know, store in uh, Winnetka, Illinois be quite as good as your store on Fifth Avenue in New York? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But you can still ensure a level of consistency across all stores by having clear standards and a clear vision for the experience you're trying to unfold. I, I love how this analogy has legs, actually, because I'm thinking as as you're talking about it that, you know, if there's like the original Broadway cast and when someone leaves the production and someone comes in, you'll often hear the reviews will say that this next actor brought something new to the role. So it's recognizably that production, but it's it's got whatever that next actor has that's different from before. The other thing that's important, I think about it, is that as you said, the blocking and the work and the choices are made ahead of time. And then when the production, when there's an audience, there's a connection between that production and the audience and the actors in the audience. You can tell when something's working. You can almost feel it. And that seems like something that retailers are also chasing. Yeah, it's that palpable feeling. And really, I think what it is, is it's human energy. Sometimes, you know, even if I'm giving a talk to a group of, of people in an auditorium and you just for a moment, you stop talking and you just, you can feel this energy in the room of all of these, you know, human beings together uh, in that moment together, there's an energy. It's quite remarkable, really. And you're right. I think that's what we are ultimately trying to create on some level in a retail experience. Now, we also get, you know, the question, Daphne, well, you know, let's say I just want to go in and buy a box of Band-Aids. You know, I really don't need a Band-Aid buying experience, right? And I get that. I get that there are experiences in our lives that are remarkable, not because they are so immersive and engaged, but because they're so non-immersive and, and completely disengaged. They're just easy. And so, you know, if we look at who are the brands that are going to succeed going forward, I really believe we can divide it much the way we divide the brain. I think there are brands that are going to succeed because they become the cognitive default, right? 70% of us go to Amazon first now when we're searching for a product. And we do so because Amazon has done a wonderful job of positioning itself as the cognitive default for a lot of the commodity products that we need in our lives. What most brands, and most brands, let's face it, are not going to be able to go toe-to-toe with an Amazon when it comes to being that cognitive default, nor, nor do they want to in most cases. I think the rich ground, the high ground for most brands is in becoming the emotional default by becoming a very specific answer to a, a, a longing or a desire or a question on the consumer's part whether that's a question around who can entertain me today when I go shopping or who do I align with culturally or philosophically in terms of brands or who simply has the most beautifully designed products or the greatest level of expertise in their stores. These are the places where retailers can win, but you don't win it by saying that's what you are. You win it by doing it, by being it and articulating an experience that out of every fiber and ligament and nerve ending of your business, it exudes 
that experience and that purpose and positioning. So that's sort of you know where where I think that when we talk about this ethereal thing called experience a lot, it is really about delivering uh, something that is tangible and that underpins the value and purpose that you provide to consumers. It's interesting. I'm glad that you brought up Amazon because they are sort of the one that disproves this need for connection that we're talking about. They've really taken that mind share by making things easy and problem solving and making things fast. They haven't been quite as fast for the last year or so, largely because of the pandemic, the supply chain problems that are sort of bedeviling everybody. Amazon has not been immune. Do you feel like the pandemic it has sort of it has Amazon taken a hit? Are they as invulnerable as ever? Where do you see them right now? So it's it's a really interesting question. It's a very interesting time for Amazon. A lot of things changing, right? I mean, they've changed their leadership. They've invested in some very unique ways through the pandemic. You know what's interesting, uh, and I was talking to. Uh, a fellow who's the founder of a business called Marketplace Pulse. All he does is follow businesses like Amazon and other marketplaces and sort of evaluates their performance. And his view was that, you know, Amazon didn't really gain market share through the pandemic. If anything, you might argue that they've lost market share, you know? So, I mean, don't get me wrong. In 2020, their top line was huge. I mean, the, the increase was massive, but the rest of the retail industry globally improved its capabilities and and sort of at least got to the point of saying okay we can you know we can ante up the table stakes here in, in, as it pertains to to online commerce so whether or not amazon has become stronger because of the pandemic i think that's highly debatable but if i take a step even further i i wrote an article i guess it was 2017 in which i posited the idea that within a decade so by 2027, I really felt that Amazon could could begin to falter, you know, um, and <laughs> I'll say it was a very divisive article in the sense that some people said, you know, I'd, I'd basically lost my, my mind. What the hell was I talking about? Amazon was this, you know, impenetrable, invincible behemoth that, that could never fall. And then there were others that said, you know, yeah, I potentially see some cracks forming in the foundation. But... My reason for saying that was a few things. First of all, I think that Amazon's problem, Amazon's greatest competitor is its own success. Amazon has been wildly successful with a very particular model for how it does what it does. I'm not suggesting it hasn't innovated and improved that model, but fundamentally, Amazon today, as an experience for the consumer from an interface standpoint, looks a lot like it did five, even 10 years ago. So They've been super successful with that model. Now, this reminds me a lot of Walmart because Walmart was incredibly successful, as you'll recall, Daphne, with their Supercenter uh, store model. That was where all the investment from Walmart was pouring into that. That was at a time when they probably should have been making huge investments in e-commerce, and they weren't. All the way up to 2015, they had resisted you know, major investments in e-commerce. So their success was conspiring against them. And, and I think that Amazon has a, a, a significant chance of the same thing happening. And one thing I'll point to is that Daniel Zhang, Alibaba's uh, CEO, recently said he was being interviewed about, did the pandemic help you or hurt you? And he said, we, we lost market share. We know we lost market share because we had a lot more competition. And when you look at the way competition now for online is, is shaping up, what I see is a decentralization of e-commerce. We've talked about sort of the decentralization of supply chains and retail in general, but I'm really seeing a decentralization of e-commerce. I think e-commerce is fundamentally ceasing to be a thing that is centralized and search-driven the way Amazon and Alibaba principally are, and it is moving to becoming far more ambient. It's becoming dispersed, decentralized, and more entertainment-based. So we're seeing, you know, more and more retail now in things like live stream or video shopping or a cart that's attached to a TikTok video, you know. So that's a major shift. You have to question, is Amazon on that train? And, and if they are, why aren't they pioneering it? 
You know, why aren't they moving in that direction uh, through innovation? So that's one thing that I that I worry about. They could miss a very, very important shift in the marketplace. The other things that are conspiring against them, I think, are really on the level of people. You know, I think Amazon has had to do a tremendous amount of damage control when it comes to people. And that can be the people that work in their factories. It can be the vendors that they are serving uh, that have alleged that they have copied their products or used their data to inform competitive strategies. The list goes on and on and on. But at the end of the day, you can't just keep burning trust with your audience. You can say, well, our focus is on the consumer, but eventually, if you don't have people working for you, you don't have brands that are partnering with you, your, your business goes out of business. So that's another front where I, I think that they could potentially really start to see some cracks forming in the foundation. It's interesting. In a way, you know, Amazon isn't about storytelling in the way that you talked about no, brands needing no, to tell a story. Their story is, you'll get it fast. Yeah. Fast. And, and we have what you want. And cheaply, yeah. probably. Yeah. So now the substitute story, the only thing that is there to fill that side of your brain is the story about people. I think it's increasingly about the customers, too, just in the sense of some of the problems with the marketplace and fake products, things like that. Yes, indeed. That's an ongoing game of whack-a-mole that you know, Amazon and others are having to face. And I think also, you know, there's the, there's the environmental issue. You know, I was talking with the CEO of a very, very significant brand in the apparel space yesterday. And he was saying, you know, when I took on this position, someone asked me about sustainability. And I said, it's on our agenda, but it's not right at the moment. It's not at the top. He, he, this is a CEO who's facing a pretty significant turnaround. But he said, um, within a year after they had done some study, it moved to the top of the list because they, they now understood how important it was not only to consumers in general, and here we're just talking about environmental, social issues, governance issues, but in particular to young consumers. Young consumers are twice as likely to make decisions about a business, who to do business with on the basis of their environmental, you know, their behavior as it pertains to the environment or social issues. So that too, when you're shipping, you know, a box of uh, HB pencils to someone uh, specifically in its own carton and on it on a truck by itself, how can that be tenable? We have some Gen Z consumers in my house, and you know, I think the awareness of packaging is really increasing, and I think this kind of goes back to storytelling or communication. Anyway, I think if maybe if more retailers would say, you know, if you if you waited, you know, speed has been such a push for the past several years, largely driven by Amazon. But if consumers understood, well, if you can wait a few more days, we'll be able to use fewer boxes and whatever. Amazon gave us a problem that we never really had. Much the way the packaged goods industry created, you know, things like halitosis you know, and, and, and things like that, you know, this notion that I think it was one of the mouthwash brands actually created this, this thing. It was just bad breath, but they came yeah. up with a term for it. Right. And so that all of a sudden everyone woke up one morning and said, oh my goodness, I think I have, you know, halitosis. <laughs> and, and so, it, you know, it, it sort of drove them toward this product. I think that Amazon did the same thing. Amazon basically told us you're not getting the things you need fast enough. And we believed it. We believed that getting something in two days or three days was completely unsatisfactory. And that regardless of what it is, I need that thing tomorrow or I need it today if I can get it. And let's be honest with ourselves, right? How many things do you actually need right away, you know, that you can't wait a day or two for? So Amazon did a brilliant job of convincing us that we had a problem that we weren't aware of. You know, as you were talking about the new way of storytelling and e-commerce becoming sort of the sea that you're swimming in, let's talk about the metaverse and retail from your point of view, how it might change retail and consumer behavior and any downsides. It's hard to go online for five minutes without reading at least a couple of articles on the metaverse. You know, I, I guess the place to start is what what is it really? Because I, you know, I hear people say things like, um, well, I heard Facebook is building the metaverse. 
or, um, oh, we're already living in the metaverse, you know? And so I think there's, there's a fundamental misunderstanding to some extent about what the metaverse actually is, uh, or what it, what is defined as the metaverse is essentially a, a parallel reality to the reality that we experience today. And, and it is defined as being the, the culmination the sum total of all virtual worlds, augmented reality, virtual reality, and a number of different platforms all coming together in an interoperable manner where we can move from one place to another in real time through a persistent reality. So in other words, persistent meaning in the same way that if you and I were sitting in a restaurant, Daphne, and I got up and came back 45 minutes later, you, you might still be sitting there waiting for me, wondering where I was. That kind of persistent reality in a, in a way that we can interact not just with two people, three people, or 12 people on a Zoom call, but potentially with millions, with everyone. So we're not there yet. We're not there technologically. <laughs> Our imaginations are there, I think, and the pandemic has sort of accelerated our imaginations, but we're nowhere near the kind of protocols and technological advancement that would be required to power this metaverse. But we, I believe we'll get there, and I truly believe that it is a logical extension of where we are today. You know, we do, to some extent, live in virtual worlds. You know, I'm, you and I are having a virtual experience right now. I had another couple of virtual experiences this morning. So we're there, but it's not engaging. It's not immersive. It doesn't feel real. It feels disconnected. There's, there's a barrier. The metaverse hopes to break down those barriers and make the whole thing feel more like a real, a real world experience. All of that makes sense. What is compelling to me from a retail standpoint is the means through which we can create value now. And so I think about things that these intangible assets, digital assets uh, that, you know, uh, not that long ago, I mean, how much was a, a LeBron James video clip worth? Well, who knows? I don't know. Is it authentic? Did you just download it off YouTube? Are you trying to sell me something that I have access to? Who knew, right? But now you can literally go and buy at NBA Top Shots an online seller of NFTs, you can buy a LeBron James clip and some people are paying, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. Why? Well, number one, we can authenticate things now using blockchain technology. We can authenticate its rarity or the limited nature of something. If we say it is one of one, that can actually be verified and corroborated. And we can assign ownership of things now too whether it's a smart contract or, or again, just a, a blockchain-based transaction. So when you start kind of extrapolating the opportunities there, you know, for services and products, and whether it's, you know, virtual products or buying an NFT that gives me access to a real product in the real world and a virtual product in the virtual world, the possibilities become endless. And even now, you know, we're hearing about, you know, Nike building out Nike land on Roblox. We're hearing about companies that are actually buying virtual real estate within places like Decentraland or Upland, some of these um, more developed marketplaces for virtual real estate. But I truly believe that, you know, five years or 10 years from now, when this notion of the metaverse comes to full fruition, much the way brands, remember, remember when brands uh, were late to act on getting their domain names, and then they had to wind up buying them from some dude in, you know, in Europe somewhere who bought up everybody's brand names. I think that the same sort of thing could happen with the metaverse. I think that you could find brands that are saying, you know, we really should have bought that virtual real estate uh, in Decentraland on, you know, that premier shopping avenue when we had the chance. Now we've got to pay this person, a, you know, a 300% upcharge on what they paid for it a few years ago. So it's a compelling thing. Now, you asked about the downsides. You don't hear a lot about the downsides. I've talked to a, an enormous number of people now because I'm producing a podcast and one of the episodes is looking at this. And oftentimes it really is about, hey, you know, it's cool. NFTs are cool. Virtual experiences will be more engaging. We can go to virtual concerts and all that stuff and wear virtual clothing. It sounds great, except it might not be. So think about it. We have generations now of children who are severely anxious and depressed. A lot of that having to do with, and frankly, coinciding with the growth of social media, because now, you know, 
I had to really be concerned about how I look and how I sound and what I'm wearing. Now what we're talking about is not only will you have to carry that anxiety and depression in, in, in your real life experiences, but now when you go online into the metaverse, people are also going to be looking to see what kind of NFT virtual running shoes you're wearing. So are we adding yet another layer of uh, you know, materialism onto what is already kind of a broken social system around material possessions? So that's my one concern. My second concern is, you know, this notion of people say, well, virtual clothing is the way to go because virtual clothing can't end up in a landfill site. And on the one hand, yes, that, that, that is true. That is factually the case. But on the other hand, there's an environmental tool as well. When we start talking about the metaverse and the computing power that would be required to even maintain it, to fire it up, even blockchain activity you know, block, blockchain mining and, and uh, processing of transactions carries an environmental cost. Now, there are companies and, and groups out there that are working on things like this, you know, working on more efficient means of, of managing blockchain so the energy requirements aren't as high. But we can't ignore that. And then finally, virtual clothing sounds like a great idea. Unless you're a female factory worker in Bangladesh who is relying on the fashion industry for survival. So it's fine to say, you know, look, let's pioneer our way into the metaverse and life will be great. We just need to make sure that it's not just great for Westerners. Yeah. Or the, or the, the developed world. We can't leave people behind that, that frankly are already being left behind by other technological revolutions. So those are my beefs. It sort of reminds me of just how we can get ourselves in trouble by searching for efficiencies that tighten things up so much that we lock people out of the economy. When we innovate in any respect, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Is it possible? And the answer with the metaverse is yes. Clearly, it's, it's possible. Is it probable? And I think, again, the answer is yes. I think it's the logical you know, through line from where we are today. The last question is the most important. Is it preferable? And that's the question we don't ask enough. The metaverse can be, it could be preferable, it could be wonderful, so long as we use it as a means to fix what is already broken in society. That's where we need to get to. We weirdly had a, a, a very small test run of some of the things you're talking about during the pandemic, because while we had to cover up our faces when we were in the real world, we had to look really good for our zoom meetings. So, right. Well, from the, from the neck up anyway. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, zoom meetings after zoom meetings, it's, we, I think we've all also discovered that it can be a lot more exhausting to be connecting virtually all the time and not going out into the world. And it's really true. Young people and children I, I have really struggled. And, and as adults, I don't think we really had the answers for them. So let's work on that. Yeah. You know, we, it, it, retail can be a force for good. Uh, William McDonough, who wrote Cradle to Cradle, a great, great book uh, on sustainability. He, he said to me one time, you know, organizations target as a goal, they target uh, doing less harm. You know, we're going to make sure that our products are less harmful or our business practices are less egregious. <laughs> and he said, is that really a goal? Like, imagine if somebody said, you know, there's lead in your water today, but we're going to make sure over the next few years that we reduce that amount of lead that's in your water. You'd say, well, what are you talking about? Get the lead out of my water. I don't want any lead in my water, right? So he said, you know, the, the, the goal of every organization should not just be to do less harm. It should be to, to do good to become a force for good. So I hope that retailers take that to heart as they venture into the metaverse. Well, as I said, I, the younger consumers in our household are Gen Z, and we, we've got Gen Y, who now is having a pretty profound, you know, the pandemic is not over. Could you give me some sense of these young consumers? You know, I've, I've seen the studies about their priorities and, and sustainability. And I'm sure that some of their opinions are also going to be shaped by their experience in the pandemic. Are they going to have the economic power to actually choose to buy the things that might be more sustainable and therefore more expensive? Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's a good question, and it's certainly one that bears asking because, you know, this is a generation. I, you know, I often say to people that my parents were products of both the Depression and World War II. Those were the events in their lives that kind of framed their perception of reality and I think really framed their behavior for an awful long time. To their dying day, they were clearly, you know, products of that era. Well, millennials are products of an era as well, and it's an era that hasn't been incredibly kind to them. Uh, you know, they came of age and, and uh, came out of school into the workforce after the uh, massive financial crisis of 2008, 2009. And just when they were sort of starting to make some gains, they got walloped by a pandemic, which has really just spun the labor market in general out, out, of, uh, out of proportion. So where does that leave them? Uh, the Federal Reserve published some figures not that long ago that I just presented to another group that suggests that basically... Uh, wages since since the 1980s, when adjusted for inflation, have stagnated. So, so millennials today are not making more money than their parents did at, at the same age. They have less wealth. They have about two-thirds on average of the wealth that their parents had at the same age. But here's the whopper. They're carrying about twice the amount of debt that their parents carried at the same age. They're not doing great. And you know, what's interesting is we we look at this notion of side hustles, you know, <laughs> and, and we say, you know, good for them. Good for them going and getting a side hustle, you know, how entrepreneurial of them. And on one level, of course, it is. I'm glad. I'm glad so many people are out there starting businesses or, you know, those people who are choosing to, to make extra money in the gig economy. But let's face it, you know, 30 years ago, we called that a part time job. And if somebody told you I'm working full time and I also have a part time job to earn extra money, you didn't maybe look at it like, oh, you know, they're they're an entrepreneur that's blazing a trail, you know, blazing their own their own course. So we have to appreciate that this is a generation that is under economic pressure. And they're also a generation that is going to be largely responsible for caring for the generations ahead of them when they're, you know, when they're retired and when they're aging. So their financial health is really going to dictate everyone's health. Now, what does it mean for brand choices? It means that they're frugal. It means that they are frugal. Uh, and and Gen, Gen Z, you mentioned the, you know, the Gen Zs in your house, between nine and 24 years old, they too are proving to be frugal. They're saving about 30% of their disposable incomes. Now, many of them are living at home, of course, but they're savers. 14% of them, I just read a stat recently, it said 14% have uh, retirement accounts. 14% of Gen Z, I, you know, there are baby boomers that are still lag, lacking in, in retirement savings. So I think they're going to be frugal. I think they're going to be discerning. I think they're going to be demanding and they're going to hold retailers to a new standard. And all the more reason to say we are either going to be the cognitive default because we are so easy to do business with, or we're going to become the emotional default for these guys so that they, they absolutely love us as a brand. And that's what will bring them to us. Do you see retailers and brands as having a role here as far as when you talk about, we talk about income inequality and some of the, the gaps that we need to close. It, it's not, you know, for millennials and, and the younger generations, it's not even just education debt, which we talk about a lot, but things like rent and medical debt that last possibly even longer than college loans. Is there a role here for retailers to basically say, you know, it's not just about minimum wage or competitive wage so I can compete with my rival chains, but a living wage? Do you think there's a, there's a place for that? I think there absolutely is. There, there absolutely is. I mean, my goodness, you know, if, if someone is working full time, they're working 40 plus hours a week. And they can't afford to put a roof over their head. They can't afford to buy, you know, clothing for their children or put their kids through a decent school. There's something wrong with that, you know? And people that say, well, there's nothing wrong with that, then I would challenge them. And I would say, then why was it that in 1975, you could work retail and have a mortgage and put your kids through a decent school, you know? And the answer is simple. We've suppressed wages in this industry. We've driven wages down consistently for about 30 plus years, maybe longer than that now, 40 years. We've been pushing against unionization. We've been pushing against uh, benefits. 
for employees. And we've certainly been been pushing against minimum wage increases. And even if you look at the minimum wage today, you know, there are companies out there that are waving the flag and saying, hey, everybody, we're paying $15 an hour. Well, if minimum wage had kept up with inflation, it would be closer to 25 now. So we need to stop patting ourselves on the back for that, you know? So I think, yeah, retail, retail does have a place in this. They have a very conspicuous role to play in, in the future of labor. And I think they're paying the price for that right now because there's a labor shortage, because enough people have said, you know what? Sorry, I'm not putting myself on the front lines of a brand during a pandemic so that I can get my $200, whatever people were calling it, you know, the hero bonus, right? And then as soon as uh, things open up a little bit, my hero bonus is gone. And I'm, I'm right back on the front lines, putting myself in danger. So enough people have said, no, not for me. Sorry, I'm stepping out. And so retailers have to come back to the table. Now, I advise for a brand that has a store in New York City, they have taken a very different approach they, because we realized going into this how important people were to making this brand work and really delivering the experience we wanted delivered. And they said, um, we're going to hire not just people willing to work retail, we're going to hire influencers. We're going to hire people that are out there talking about our products and building a community of users. We're going to bring them in. We're going to pay them a 30% premium right off the top just, just to come and work for us. And I was speaking to them recently and I said, how, you know, how is that? Like, is, are you paying too much, do you think? And they said, no, absolutely not. It's worth every penny because we get amazing productivity and performance out of these people and they're truly gifted. That's where we need to get to as an industry. Arguably, would you say part of the set of choices that you make as you develop a store that is more than just a building with aesthetics? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, let's go back <laughs> yeah. to the Broadway play. Do you think uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was um, saying, you know, I, I just need to get the cheapest actors in here for this performance. I just need people that are willing to work two shows a day. You know, just get me those people and, and make sure that I can pay them as little as possible. I doubt that was the conversation. Might have been more like, I want the best actors in every single role, regardless of what it costs. Well, and to your point about unions, even if he were, I don't, I don't think he ever would be interested in the lowest paid, but he wouldn't be able to because they are members of a union. So absolutely and 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 so they should be because people should have rights in their workplace and they they should have someone who is uh, bargaining on their behalf i believe it's not all about supply and demand we've we tried supply and demand for the last 40 years and look where it left the retail industry so we're recording this podcast at the tail end of 2021 send us off with it's a new year what are maybe the two couple fundamental things that retailers, as they take stock of their year and start making their 2022 plans or five-year plans, what should be top of mind? I'm going to say something that is not at all technological. I'm not going to tell people to invest in AI or you know, uh, some sort of uh, technology that's going to be the silver bullet. I'm not going to just tip them to one trend that I think is really important because I don't I think it's I think it's more crucial than that. I think that the the question every retail leader should be sitting down with at this point or maybe over the holidays, they need to sit down, they need to say, if my brand is the answer, what's the question? What is the question that that our brand and our brand alone is the exclusive answer to in the consumer's mind? And that question can take many forms. Uh, you can be a cultural leader, you know, in your category. You can be a Patagonia on the front lines of the environment. You can be a Nike that is engaged in telling deep human stories. So you can be a cultural icon. You can be an entertainment destination. You can have wildly entertaining stores where people go to have fun while they shop. You know, uh, or or to see the newest, coolest stuff. If you're if you're a tastemaker brand, so you can have an entertainment value. You can have a value from an expertise standpoint. You can be the authoritative voice in your category when it comes to expertise and knowledge, or you know, service discipline. Or you can just have kick-ass products, beautifully designed products that people just love and covet. 
but you have to be the answer to a question. If you are not a clear answer to a question, then you have no compass heading as a brand. You don't even know what kind of experience you're out to create. You don't know who you should hire to create it. You don't understand the technologies that suit your delivery of that experience. You have no roadmap because if you don't know who you are as a brand, you cannot be anything to anyone. So sit down and figure out your purpose. And oftentimes, Daphne, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've asked that question in, in a group of executives within the same company. And not only sometimes is there silence because nobody has a clear answer, but oftentimes they disagree on what their core purpose is. So that's number one. You've got to iron that out. And the only other thing I would say is that, you know, we talk about innovation a lot in business, not just retail, but in business. And the truth is most organizations are not built for innovation. They're just not. They don't hire people based on how innovative they believe they are. They don't structure their compensation plans to promote innovation. They don't promote a work culture that is suitable to create a fertile environment for innovation. And many organizations don't even measure innovation or, or what it does for the organization. So. I would ask uh, that every retail leader really sit down and be honest with themselves. Do we have an innovative organization? And if not, is it because we haven't built for it? It's hard enough as a huge organization, a huge brand to disrupt yourself. Some would argue that it's almost impossible, but you certainly can't do it if what you're really rewarding inside the four walls of your business is not innovation, but compliance, following the rules, coloring in the lines. You've got to encourage people to take risks. And that means you have to purpose build the organization to promote that. And those are my holiday wishes. <laughs> yes. Well, that's a perfect way to, I think, polish off 2021 and start off 2022. I would say see you next year, except that I know I'm going to be getting in touch with you lots of times for my stories. I always welcome those calls. Yes, I appreciate that. And for anyone who wants to get in touch with you or see what you have to say, um, do you want to give us your Twitter handle and your, your site? Yeah, sure. It's retailprofit.com is the mothership. And uh, if you're following on Twitter, it's just at retailprofit. Perfect. And Doug Stevens, author of Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. Thanks so much for helping us usher in the new year. Daphne, it is honestly always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode of The Backroom was produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.